there can be only one. <laughs> You're going to need your Bible on this one. Stick around. Let's talk about it. Houston, we have a problem. Habemos papam. Podcasting from a parking lot in the Woodlands, Texas, it's the Catholic Hack with Joe McLean. Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which will be given up for you. 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all, so that sins may be forgiven. The Church of the Living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 Do this in memory of Welcome back to The Catholic Hack. I'm Joe McLean, and this is episode number 58. Today, we're going to start a discussion on the one true church, the doctrine that the Catholic Church is the one church founded by Christ. Today, we're only going to get into the foundation of that discussion. I'm not going to go where you think I'll go with all the uh, standard scripture passages. No, I'm going to start from a different angle. Talk about the nature of that church. How can we, how can we identify it? How would we know it if it uh, slapped us in the face, so to speak? That's where we're going to start today. We have some great feedback to share with you as well, and some good news all coming your way. But before we begin, let us start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, all glorious and mighty God, we come before you to praise your holy name. We seek your mercy, Father, and the gift of your grace to be upon us, to wash over us. I pray for your Holy Spirit to come upon this podcast and to guide it for your glory alone, not my ego, but your glory. O Heavenly Father, may your will be done. I lift up the listeners of this podcast to you, Father. I praise you for the gifts that you've given them, the blessings in their lives, the glorious children that bless their days and bring hope to their hearts, for their friends and their loved ones. For the woes who graduate this year, O Heavenly Father, guide them through life, whether it's through college or even into the workplace. Guide them by your holy hand to become disciples, light, not under a bushel basket, but set on a hill for the whole world to see, to light the path in this dark world, to show the way to you, to your heart. So many of are leaving home right now, Father. These teenagers who are going off, I pray for their security. O blessed lady, watch over them. I trust them to your sacred mantle, and I beg that you will intercede for them, each and every one of them. Whisper their names into the ear of your son. I pray for the men of this podcast, the men who listen, who have reached out to me, who are striving to make differences in our church, in our society, in the lives of other men. Holy Lady, pray for these men. O Saint Joseph, pray for these men. O Heavenly Father, show us how to be men like Christ Jesus, to lay down our lives, to be courageous in the faith, to love our families enough to get them to heaven, 
to be holy and sanctified, set apart. Give us the courage to be saints in this world, to resist all sin and all temptation, to not degrade ourselves and the women around us by sexual temptation. Let us see past that. Let us behold the dignity of sexuality in our lives. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray for the women. God, strengthen them. These courageous women, strengthen them, for they are tested so much every day. Stressed to the limit, help them to see your gifts in their lives. Help them to serve you every day of their life by living fully with those graces and those gifts that you've given them. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray for those who struggle in addictions, sexual, alcoholic, narcotics, gambling. No matter what it is, oh, Holy Father, I pray that you bring them back, and I pray boldly and ask you to free them of this sinfulness, of this temptation, to let them understand that Christ came to set them free. They don't have to lust or to be tempted anymore. They are free to love and live as you have created them to do. Oh, Heavenly Father, for those who are lost this week, there's such a great loss, loss of life in this world. Every day we kill more and more. God, have mercy on our wretched souls. Open our eyes, O Heavenly Father, that we might see the error of our ways and repent and turn back to you. And you might remove this heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. I pray for the conversion of all of us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, we have a lot to talk about today. So let's not waste any more time, and let's start breaking bread with Dr. Scott Hahn. The Eucharist is the test of true discipleship. Jesus' teaching about the real presence is a hard saying indeed surpassing the limits of human reason. It is a divine mystery, and yet we can grow ever deeper in our understanding and appreciation of that mystery. Find out how, next on Breaking the Bread. This Sunday, we celebrate Corpus Christi, the body and blood of Christ. The Holy Eucharist is given to us as a challenge and a promise. That's how Jesus presents it in the gospel. He doesn't make it easy for those who hear him. They're repulsed and offended at his words. Even when they begin to quarrel, he insists on describing the eating and drinking of his flesh and blood in starkly literal terms. Four times in this week's reading, Jesus uses a Greek word, trogain, that refers to a crude kind of eating, a gnawing or a chewing. He's testing their faith in his word. As our first reading describes God testing Israel in the wilderness, the heavenly manna was not given to satisfy the Israelites' hunger, as Moses explained. It was given to show them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In our psalm also, we see a connection between God's word and the bread of life. We sing of God filling us with finest wheat 
and proclaiming his word to the world. In Jesus, the living Father has given us his word, made flesh, come down from heaven for the life of the world. Yet as the Israelites grumbled in the desert, many in this week's gospel cannot accept that word. Even many of Jesus' own followers grumble and abandon him after this discourse. But his words are spirit and life, the words of eternal life. In the Eucharist, we are made one flesh with Christ. We have his life in us and have our life because of him. This is what Paul means when he calls the Eucharist a communion or participation in Christ's body and blood. We become in this sacrament nothing less than partakers of the divine nature. This is the mystery of faith that Jesus asks us to believe. And he gives us his promise that sharing in his flesh and blood that was raised from the dead, we too will be raised up on the last day. This is Scott Hahn for Breaking the Bread. Breaking the Bread is a production of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. If you'd like to receive written copies of Dr. Hahn's reflections on the Sunday Mass readings, you can contact us by email at staff at salvationhistory.com or call us at 740-264-9535. That's 740-264-9535. Well, I hope you have your Bibles today because we have a lot of great material to get into. I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I have just preparing for it. So without further ado, let's roll up our sleeves and let's dive deep and get into the truth about the one church. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! This school when I sit, even just a little bit, I get hit with the power that made the veil in the temple split. When I submit, fall on the floor and the door. Can't get enough, got to come back for some more. Hey, we've got a problem here. Sinner, every unit in the three can benefit in this school. All right, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, grace to you and peace from the Lord our God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, in paragraph 811, it says, This is the sole Church of Christ, which in the creed we profess to be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. These four characteristics, inseparably linked with each other, indicate essential features of the Church and her mission. The Church does not possess them of herself. It is Christ who, through the Holy Spirit, makes His Church one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And it is He who calls her to realize each of these qualities. You know, I thought I'd just start there. You know, there's so much obvious material you can use for this conversation. I mean, really very plain, obvious to read scripture passages, uh, early church fathers, the whole nine. You know, I think I'll get to that, but in a future podcast, we'll continue this discussion. What brought this on, I've just sort of been itching to have this conversation for a while. I happen to know folks who are extreme non-denominationalists, you know, or even evangelicals even, 
they think that all believers belong to the mystical body of Christ. Like the mystical body is intangible. It's invisible. You can't see it, feel it, smell it, put your hands on it, you know, and everybody belongs to it no matter what. Well, you know, the Bible says very clearly, Ephesians 5 and elsewhere, that the church is the body of Christ. And it's one with Christ. Christ is its head. So if you have multiple believers who, who all have opposing opinions of doctrine, and even on ideas of how worship should be conducted, well, what you end up with is a schizophrenic Jesus. So is it possible that there could be so many divisions in Christianity? You know, to prepare for this discussion, I was listening to John Martinoni and, and uh, Fulton Sheen and, and, uh, and Singing in the Rain uh, blog spot. You know, there's so much great material here that there, I just thought what I would do is, okay, let's, how can we identify what the one church is? Let's go back to the day that the Holy Spirit came down upon the church and it came to life. And let's look at the characteristics. Let's look at the nature of that church. Then let's apply that to what we see today. You know, is it possible there can be only one? I stole that from the Highlander movie. I would have played the sound clip, but it was such bad audio quality, I decided just to say it instead. So, there can be only one. That's the premise that I make. There was only supposed to be one. It was only desired by God to be one. God has a say in how worship is conducted. He has his preference. And everybody else's ideas simply don't matter, including mine. I'll put mine in the basket. I'm not saying that it's my opinion that matters. No. What I'm saying is let's ignore our own opinions and let's look after and seek after what God wants. And whatever he wants, that's what we should do. So let's go and investigate what happened on that day, that Pentecostal day, you know, there in Acts chapter 2. And we just passed this here in the liturgical calendar, the day of Pentecost, where we read Acts chapter 2. And we, we, we heard these words. Now, if you're like me, and I, I'm sure most of you are, you've probably read Acts chapter 2 several times and, and read over some of this really, really great detail without paying too much attention to it. You know, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come... They were all together in one place. We can't even get past verse 1 and see the unity of that event, the unity of the organization, the people. They were all together. If you were to read Acts chapter 1, what you would see is they were still all together. And Peter stands up and he brings about the election of the 12th apostle to replace the episcopate, to replace the office of Judas, because Judas had a place in the ministry. It was an office that someone had to fill because it had become vacant. And so Judas is, is, is now hung himself, and now they, 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 with the Holy Spirit, bring in Matthias to replace him. So they have a full 12 apostles. And then we go into this event where they are all together there, with our Blessed Lady sitting in their midst. They are unified. They're one. In verse 2 it says, And suddenly a sound came from heaven, like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What is going on here? Is this some sort of, you know, Pentecostal Jimmy Swagger speaking in tongues, preaching the word, dance, revival, you know, tent revival kind of thing going on here? No, not at all. That's the thing here. That's the trick. 
we have to look past our 21st century Western mindset and really dive deep into the events and, and to the details of what's going on. To a first century Jew, this was astonishing. It even goes on to say that, that in verse 5, now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? All right, already we haven't even made it to verse 9 yet. And we have some very critical data that we must take note of. Okay, they were all together in one place. There was a mighty sound a huge, enormous sound, that this sound got the attention of everybody around, and they all gathered as a result to this noise, this loud, overwhelming noise. We have tongues of fire, and we have speaking in tongues, and that the people were filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have people from devout men who came to Jerusalem to worship, where? At the temple gathered at the temple to worship from the four corners, it says, from all the nations of the earth, gathered there in Jerusalem. Okay, we have a lot of things going on here. It's critical, and I'll tell you why here in a minute. In order to save time, I really want you to read Acts chapter 2. Read the whole thing. Read it a couple of times. But there's so much I want to get into that I'm afraid if I read the whole chapter to you, we would just you know, be bogged down in that. And you could you could probably read that on your own. So let's just summarize some of the key points here. Peter stands up, you know, and he's starting to proclaim. He's bold. He's courageous. And he's proclaiming to these people about this man that they themselves saw crucified, you know, just days before, you know, and this was critical, critical. Because Peter starts to tell them that prophecies are coming to pass right in front of them. He actually quotes Joel 2.28 right here in his sermon here. And what he's saying is that, that uh, it says 2.28 Joel, And in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Yea, and on my men servants and my maid servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire, and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into blackness, and the moon into blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and manifest day. And it shall be that whoever calls on me, the name of the Lord shall be saved." Now this, again, this is a, a prophecy that Joel makes, Joel 2.28, that Peter plucks right out the context and, and presents it on the table. And this is why it's so critical that we look deeper than the surface here. This is not a Jimmy Swaggart moment going on. Okay, the Jews were expecting an ingathering. You see, even Moses in Deuteronomy 30 told them, warned the people in the wilderness that they were going to fall away and that God was going to scatter them to the four ends of the earth. But there would come a day when he brings them all back. And if we turn there and we take a look at that, let's, let's go there right now. I'm flipping through my Bible. I hope you have yours ready. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, it says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, 
which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, and you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you this day, with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion upon you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Okay, that's a good example of what we can expect, that the Jews were expecting. They were expecting an ingathering. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 24, it says, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from the, all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take you out of your flesh, the heart of a stone, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to observe my ordinances. Now this is a really cool verse here, a passage. You need to pay attention to all what's going on. There is an ingathering from the four corners of the earth. There is a, a sprinkling of water. There is the removing of the heart of stone and giving of the heart of flesh. There is the new covenant and the new law. The Jews were expecting this. Even if they didn't have the eyes to see it, it was coming the way. God was telling them. He was warning them. And Remember what I said before about the Jews being there from the four corners there the day of the Pentecost? They had come to worship in the temple. You see, every, their worship was centered around the temple. This is why we see the, the Jews, devout men coming from all over to come to worship at the temple. Now this is a pretty critical um, passage and, and thought that we must keep in mind. Isaiah chapter 2, it says, and verse starting in verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of, of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now we also see in uh, Isaiah's book here, in uh, chapter 28, starting in verse 9, it says, Whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Nay, but by men of strange lips and with an alien tongue, the Lord will speak to his people, to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. Therefore the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You see, we see the concept, the gathering to the mountain, the temple, the speaking in tongues. That's what Isaiah is here. In fact, this, this verse, this passage in Isaiah's uh, chapter 28, verse 9, is actually quoted by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians. And if we go there, what we'll see is St. Paul drawing out 
what's happening on the day of Pentecost. It's actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Be babes in evil, but in thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now that's the quote from Isaiah. And he goes on to say in verse 22, Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Okay, now Acts chapter 2, there is speaking in tongues and there's prophecy. There is both signs and prophecy. So both the believers and the unbelievers should come to a conversion right there in Acts chapter 2. The devout men who who know prophecy, who know Joel, know Ezekiel, know Isaiah, know Deuteronomy 30, they were all freaking out. <laughs> they were all freaking out because they could, could barely believe their eyes. The sound, the rushing wind, the speaking in tongues, the tongues of fire, the prophecy, the signs, the wonders. To them, this was deep and profound. Now, I'll tell you why. I still haven't revealed it to you. I've sort of just been stringing you along here. I want you just to understand that what we see here is taking men from worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem, which was an empty building. You see, Jeremiah, 500 years before, took out the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant and, and hid it in a cave so that no man will ever find it again because the exile had come. The Jews were going off to Babylon. So the temple was empty. God's presence wasn't there. These men were coming to worship in an empty building. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the temple. And we see that. It's very clear in Mark's gospel as well as John's gospel. In Mark um, chapter 15, starting in verse 37, it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he thus breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. In uh, John chapter 2, it says, starting in uh, verse 18, The Jews then said to him, What sign have you to show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus is the temple, the true temple. So all these men who are gathered from the four corners of the earth, from all the nations on, on, under heaven, on earth as Acts 2 states are coming and they're being gathered to the true temple. Their perspectives are being taken from the, from the old empty temple to the new temple filled with the Holy Spirit, the church, Jesus Christ. They are not two distinct. They are one in the same. And that's the new perspective that we must now uh, take upon ourselves and see. In fact, this is the very point St. Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 16. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and that temple you are. 
You see how they're the one and the same? Jesus is the temple. That's what he told the Pharisees and the priests. He's the temple that will be raised up in three days. And that's what the apostles believed. And they only believed it after the resurrection. St. Paul here in 1 Corinthians tells us that we're the temple, the body. We're united. Jesus is the church. And we who belong to the church are united to his body. And so all men who are gathered from the four corners, this ingathering, as God promised, even back in the Old Testament, would happen where he would pour out his Holy Spirit, where he would sprinkle them with clean water and and cleanse them. Okay, that's all what's going on in Acts chapter 2. Notice when Peter preaches to them and they say, what must be done? How must we be saved? What does Peter say? Repent and be baptized. What is baptism? But water and spirit. That's John 3. It's extra explicit. John 3. Water and spirit is baptism. First Peter says that baptism now saves you. I did a podcast on baptism, so I won't go there, but you can always go back and, and, and listen to that show and you can get all the scripture passages and, and hear the arguments. But So there in Ezekiel, God promises that he would cleanse him with the sprinkling of water. So it's not an act of profession of the tongue that people are joined to the church. It's a sacramental act. As Peter tells them that they must be baptized. And the promise is not just for them. It's for them, their whole family, their children. It's for all, even those who are far off. It's for every corner of this planet. Every human being is invited. This is the ingathering promised in Deuteronomy 30 and Isaiah 2. It's in Ezekiel 36. It's all over the place. It was promised. And it's come to pass. So we have prophecy and we have signs. Believers and unbelievers. We have a little for both. And both should be should be now be reprioritized from the empty building in Jerusalem to the temple, the true temple. See, that building was only a shadow of the truth. The truth is Jesus Christ. It's a person. Truth is not an abstract concept. It's a person, Jesus Christ. And so he's the temple. And so we're all gathered towards him. As I was preparing for this podcast, I was reading Singing in the Rain uh, blog from Michael Barber and Dr. Brand Petrie, and they are um, biblical scholars. They're actually going to be at the Fullness of Truth Catholic Evangelization uh, Conference in Dallas in August. Uh, so if you're around, come on by. Uh, but they were talking about all of this, comparing this work called First Enoch, which the Orthodox churches accept as canon, but uh, we don't. But it's still cited in the book of Jude. Jude. So we know the apostles knew of this work. We knew that the first century Jews knew this work. And some of them accepted this work as canonical. But in in uh, First Enoch chapter 14, it says, uh, I'm going to skip ahead here. I don't really see any verses, but it says, Behold, in the vision, clouds invited me, and a mist summoned me. And the course of the stars and the lightning sped me and hastened me. And the winds in the vision caused me to fly and lifted me upward and bore me into heaven. And I went in till I drew nigh to a wall which is built of crystals and surrounded by tongues of fire. And it began to affright me. And I went into the tongues of fire and drew nigh to a large house which was built of crystals. And the walls of the house were like a tessellated floor made of crystals. 
and its groundwork was of crystal. Its ceiling was like the path of stars and the lightings, and between them were fiery cherubim, and there heaven was clear as water. A flaming fire surrounded the walls, and its portals blazed with fire. And I entered into that house, and it was hot as fire and cold as ice. There were no delights of life therein. Fear covered me, and trembling got hold upon me. And I quaked and trembled. I fell upon my face. This is a vision of heaven, described as being built of tongues of fire, fiery cherubim, and this crystal, and, and this cloud who's beckoning him into this vision. This is, an, this is a vision of heaven. You know, in, in Revelation chapter 1, we see also the, uh, the seven lampstands, these, these flames on the seven lampstands, these torches like tongues of fire. So heaven can be described in these, in these visual ideas of these tongues of fire. And here we see these concepts in Acts chapter 2. Tongues of fire, the rushing wind, the prophecy, the speaking in tongues, the gathering of people to the true temple. I tell you what's going on here is the true church, the church from heaven, just touched down on earth. The Hebrew word kahal, which is the, the Hebrew word for church, this is the true kahal. This is the true church. It's just heaven just touched down on earth. The church is heaven. You see, a lot of times we think of ourselves as sojourners on this earth, waiting to go to our true home in heaven. If we had eyes of faith, we would know that we are there now. We are only physically present here, but heaven came to us so that we wouldn't have to wait. How do we know that this is, this is a, a right way to look at this? Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 22 it says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. Notice a couple of things here. It doesn't say you're going to. You're going to go to the heaven, the church of heaven. You're going to go to that church where the saints are enrolled, the church of the firstborn, the church where Christ's blood redeems the world. It doesn't say you're going there. It says you have come. You have come. And the, the word used, it says assembly here in English, but the Greek word is, is ecclesia. That's the same word we get church from. We have come to the heavenly church because the heavenly church has come down. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Ezekiel 36 and Isaiah 2 and Deuteronomy 30. It's all over the place. Jesus has called all men to himself. As John's gospel tells us, he has gathered all people to himself when he was lifted up. And he said he would pour out his spirit upon us. Well, he did that in Acts chapter 2. He said that he would, you know, he would clean us with a sprinkled clean water? Well, they, that is baptism. And that's what Peter tells them. And that's why 3,000 people were saved that day and they joined a church. Which brings me to, I'll start to wrap it up here, but it brings me to another great point. I want you to compare Exodus 19 to Acts chapter 2 to the event there at Sinai when Moses 
brings the law to the people in the wilderness, to St. Peter there at Acts chapter 2, preaching to these devout men from every nation under heaven. We see that there are 12 tribes in Exodus 19 at the Mount Sinai. There are 12 apostles. We're, we're sure of this because Judas was replaced in Acts chapter 1, remember. So we had 12, and it even says that Peter stood up with the 11. So there are 12 apostles, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. In Exodus 19, all had gathered to the mountain. In Acts, all devout men from every nation gathered. In Exodus 19, God comes down upon the, on the mountain in a loud noise, in fiery, smoky flames. Well, the loud rushing sound of rushing waters is what we read in in Acts chapter 2. So it's this loud presence noise, this, you know, this co, as as the Psalms like to say, the co of God, this loud noise. And we've actually spoken of that before. Well, in Exodus 19, God speaks in thunder, a miraculous speech of God. Well, we have the speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2. So there's this miraculous speech there. You know, I already mentioned the smoke and the fire. We have tongues of fire in Acts chapter 2. And 3,000 fell that day for disobedience to God. But 3,000 were joined to God out of obedience. So once again, we see how God is making right that which once went wrong. It went wrong in Mount Sinai when the people disobeyed and worshipped that golden calf. And God is making it right here. He's gathering the people. He's bringing them to a new exodus. Jesus is that prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy that would come, gather all the people, pour out the Spirit, clean them with sprinkled water. It's sacramental. And he's doing this here in Acts chapter 2. And they stood as one. They were one, did everything in one accord. And that's how Acts chapter 2 ends. When we look at the fine details of how Acts chapter 2 ends, it's pretty astonishing. Starting in verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Already right there, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's not you and me. That's 12 very distinct individuals. And the first Christians devoted themselves to their teaching. And it goes on to say that they devoted themselves to the prayers and to the breaking of the bread. The breaking of the bread, that's the Eucharistic language. That's what Jesus did. He broke bread. When they were all gathered, 12 men and him, which was the 12 priests, just like Moses did in Exodus. Now, I did a whole podcast on the priesthood, so you should check that out. So that these 12 apostles, very specific persons, they're the ones teaching. Everybody's devoting themselves to them as well as the breaking of the bread. And it goes on. Verse 43, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They broke bread daily. They said the Eucharistic Mass daily, the sacrifice. They heard the liturgy of the word in the temple and synagogue, and then they broke bread in their homes. The early church, the first church. What is its nature? It's all one. It's all devoted to the apostles. 
They are, they are breaking Eucharistic bread. They're having the Eucharistic meal daily and saying their prayers daily, hearing the word of God daily. They're all united. There is no dissension. They stand as one. And it is the heavenly church. So let me ask you, let's apply all of this to what we see today. If it is the heavenly church that's touched down on earth here at the, uh, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, then is it a church that can have many different ways of worship, many different doctrines, many different ideas, or is it all one? Is God schizophrenic in heaven? Does he have many things going on that he has no control over, or, or does he just accept anything and every idea? Or is the worship his idea? I mean, read, just do a cursory reading of Revelations and look at all the furniture. <laughs> look at all the incense, the sacramental language, the robes, the priests, the elders offering things up to God. I mean, does your church, if you're not Catholic, do you, you know, do you do daily Eucharistic sacrifice, the breaking of the bread daily, the reading of the word daily? As a, as a community, do you uh, devote yourself to the teaching of the apostles? Not your pastor, not, you know, uh, the guy you watch on television, but the actual apostles, the 12 distinct men led by Peter. That's the distinction that we see there in Acts chapter 2. If our church isn't like that, then we have no business being in it because it's not about us. We go to worship God, not to receive, but to give God, in his graciousness, gives us his body for life, that we might be built up, food for the journey, for the soul, nourishing our body. So our church today, the Catholic Church, has apostolic succession leading back to those 12 men, teaching the same truth handed down from them to us to, to today. So we devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles, and we have daily Eucharistic sacrifice. Every hour of every day, a mass is being said all across the world. Every stretch of this earth has a bishop in charge of it who goes back to the original apostles. We, Our mission in Matthew 28 is to go and baptize the whole world. And that's exactly what we're doing. So I suggest to you that just from a reading of Acts chapter 2, that we see that the church is heavenly and therefore by default can't contain 30,000 plus denominations. There is only one way of worship. And if your worship isn't like that, if it's not like the heavenly worship, then it has no place in the body of Christ. Now those are my words. That's what the reality is. I'm not talking about salvation or who's going to get saved and not going to get saved. It's not even about that. This is only about the one church, the one body of Christ. There is but one, Jesus. He is the truth, the way, and the life. Truth is a person. It's not an intangible, philosophical, invisible church that everybody can belong to no matter what. Doctrines matter. It can't be conflicting. And there can be only one. And it's the heavenly church. And as Hebrews 12 put it ever so plainly, that we're not going to it, we're there now. Let us have the eyes of faith and see that we are in heaven right now, right now in the heavenly church. It even starts off that whole chapter with that we're surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses. 
If we only have eyes to see, then we can see it. In verse 28 of that chapter, at the end, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, that's going to do it for today's show. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you dive deep and and really study Acts chapter 2. Really go back and pick up on all those Old Testament verses and and Google First Enoch 14. I'll put a link on the website to that document so that you can actually read it and see those tongues of fire, the see the heavenly church touch down in heaven, as Hebrews 12 tells us, and see with your eyes of faith that you belong to the one body of Christ, which is heavenly. It's not earthly. It's not man-made. It's God-made. I had some feedback I wanted to share with you, but I think it's going to have to wait till the next show. I'm already at 44 minutes, and it's time to go. The good news for you is that I will be in Atlanta June 22nd for the, the Catholic New Media event. I will be there. I have purchased my plane ticket, and due to the help of a benefactor of this podcast, the some of the costs of that have been deferred, as well as the hotel stay. So praise God and amen for that. That was huge, and I cannot thank you enough for that gift. That was a real, real blessing. Well, you know, I haven't received any voicemail feedback from any of you for the uh, anniversary show coming up May 29th. That's just next next week. You know, it's already upon me. This month has gone so busy. I would really love to hear from you. So I would truly appreciate you taking the time to send me your voicemail feedback. Let me know what this podcast has meant to you over this last year. That would really touch my heart, and I would like to share all that with all of you. So call me at 713-568-6277 and leave me a voicemail. Stop by the blog, www.catholichack.com, and leave me your comments. Check me out on Facebook or Twitter. Or you can even catch me on the SQPN website. I'd also love for you to stop by and pick up a Catholic Hack t-shirt so you can wear it to the, the Catholic New Media event. I would love to see that. That would be so awesome, so please do consider that. I also haven't received any reviews on iTunes in a little while, so I would love to uh, see more reviews there, especially for the May 29th one-year anniversary show. So please do stop by iTunes and leave me a review because my goal has been to get on page one of the featured Christian podcast list. I'm on page two. I'm, I'm getting up there. You know, I was set back a little bit. I, I tend to lose a review every once in a while, and so it goes down and up and down. So please do leave me a review today. Well, until next time, I'm praying for you. So please pray for me. May God richly bless you. God bless. SQPN, the best in Catholic podcasting.